Have you been saved? That was the question. Have you been saved? I'll tell you, it's not a question that I get very often, moving in Unitarian Universalist circles like I do, so I was a little bit shocked to hear it coming at me. Have you been saved? The question came from the leader of a newcomer series at a Unitarian Universalist congregation. I was confused at best. But there we were all together, probably 30 of us in this class, and the leader was moving us through a series of questions, questions that used religious language that demonstrated the variety of ideas and experiences among us. So the instructor had us line up, you know, along the room on a spectrum. You know, on one side, the answer would be a clear no, on the other answer, a clear yes. So the question, have you been saved? Most of us ended up way over here. A few who'd had a more traditional or conservative or different approach to religion were over on the yes side of this question. There were others, too, about what do you think happens when you die? Are people born good or evil? Is, does God exist or not? We were all over the place on the spectrum, but I felt pretty sure on this question. Have you been saved? I was pretty sure I was in the no camp. But I was over there, and part of what happens is that folks tell their stories about why they are where they are on the journey, how and why they answer the question the way that they do. And my mind began to loosen up a little bit, to unlock with its sureness, as I heard from other people there in that class. Have you been saved, was the question. I'll tell you, this sermon series we're in, Justin started us off in it last week, this question, what saves us? What saves us is the theme of these sermons that we'll explore together. And he was really clear last week that he wasn't talking about and we won't be talking about kind of what saves us from some fiery hell and plucks us into some otherworldly heaven, but rather what saves us here and now. What is saving our lives right now? What is repairing our hearts? What helps us to live more wholeheartedly, more authentically here and now? What is saving us? And I wonder, as we answer these questions, as we find out for ourselves how we as individuals will answer them, what saves us, what is sustaining us, how might those answers then guide our living, the choices that we make. I'll tell you, when I was standing on that spectrum, answering that question, have you been saved? As my mind unlocked and I began to think a little bit differently, I began to admit to myself that I have, in fact, been saved by love again and again and again in my life. Here's one example of that what that might look like. It was many years ago, about 15 years ago now, that a friend of mine told me her story about her journey as she began to recover from alcoholism. This friend, she said, and I knew, it had taken her a long time to be able to admit that she had a problem and an even longer time to become willing to accept any help. Life had turned pretty bleak and hopeless for her. She felt powerless to make the changes she knew that she had to in order to change her life and stay alive. She was wounded and angry. 
frightened and full of resistance when she made the decision to go to her first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. She lived in a small town and she didn't really want anybody to know that she was going to these meetings, so she picked one early in the morning, 7 a.m. She said nobody she knew would be awake and at a church at that time of day. That would be a sure bet. So there she went, down into the basement of this church she would never otherwise set foot in. It was the last place in the world she wanted to be, she said, and there was nowhere else she could think to go. She went into that room, into that basement, with all of her defenses up, projecting anger and a clear get-away-from-me vibe. But underneath that hard exterior, a little glimmer of hope was alive. Could these people actually help her? Might they know something that she didn't know about stopping drinking and maybe living? Might it be possible for her to finally change and get back into the stream of life? This glimmer of hope was flickering inside for my friend as she sat down in that dark, damp, musty church basement with a bad cup of coffee in her hand. And this is what I remember most about what she told me. She said, of course, they had suggestions and stories. They shared openly about what had worked for them, what didn't work. They had books and ideas. But that wasn't what did it, she said. What did it for her, what opened her heart, was the steady drip of love she felt every time she went into that church basement. A steady drip of love. Now, for my friend, this steady drip of love, it had a face and a name. It actually had two, at least. She said that for her, the steady drip of love took the shape of two women, two older women who she guesses were at least in their 70s and 80s. And somehow, miraculously, wherever she would sit in the morning in that circle of chairs, those two older women would sit right behind her. She said she couldn't figure it out. She'd try a new spot, and there they'd be, like these magic apparitions behind her. One had over 30 years of recovery, the other just a little bit of time. But they'd sit behind her, and they'd say hello, and they'd remember her name, and they'd ask her how she was. As they got to know each other a little bit, they'd bring along pictures to show her, pictures of their dogs, or maybe some stories about their kids or their families. They'd make small talk, but mostly they'd just remember her name and ask how she was doing. She said on tough days, they might do something that would make her laugh. She said they had these matching World Wrestling Federation t-shirts that they'd hide under their parkas, and like on a bad day, they'd show her the t-shirts, and she'd laugh, and things would get a little lighter. She said every now and then, they'd make a real clear suggestion, or they'd mirror back what they were seeing in her, the changes they would see. But mostly they were just there, Morning after morning, drip, drip, drip of love. It was completely disarming, she said. If it had come at her like a fire hose, she would have run out of that room screaming. She's like, I was sure it would be a cult or something terrible, but they were so nice. And they just, day after day, cared about me and saw me. She said one of the most important things they did without even knowing it was they just took their hope and put it right next to hers. They took the hope that they had that she might recover, that she might participate again in life, that she might know love and wholeness. They took their hope for her and they put it right next to her tiny hope.
and it began to open her heart. Now this kind of love that I'm talking about, it is subtle, but it is powerful. It's the stuff we might not notice when it's happening. We might not know to name it on first glance as love, but there it is all the same. It's the kind of love that comes as a genuine gift one to another, another who believes in us and encourages us, another who is simply there next to us or behind us when the light inside is flickering and dim. It's a steady presence, a drip after drip of love. It's what I think Alice Walker was talking about in that first poem, Medicine. When she talked about walking into her grandparents' room to wake them up and realizing that the medicine, it was the presence of her grandmother with her grandfather. It was that unbound, full presence right next to him that was the healing, the pain relief, the medicine. Now, love like this isn't always the stuff that we talk about or name. It's not probably what you're going to hear about in the greeting cards that are coming out for Valentine's Day this week. It's certainly not what I'm seeing in the jewelry ads or those kinds of things. But I think it is this kind of love, this steady drip of love that we share with one another that heals us as giver and receiver. It is the kind of love that has the power to save us. In her book, All About Love, Bell Hooks, the amazing author and social critic and activist, she offers up a clear definition of love. It's a definition that when I first heard it, it changed my thinking completely. She draws on a definition that comes out of M. Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. And in that book, he defined love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. He defined love as the will to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. That's what love is, he said. And Bell Hooks goes on to explain and unpack this in so many ways. She says, if you think about it like this, then love is less of a feeling less of something that happens to you or that comes upon you as you're hit with Cupid's arrow. Love is an action, an over and over again action. The way she puts it is, love is as love does. Love is as love does. Love is what love does. She says it again and again. Love is what you do when you extend yourself for the purpose of nurturing another's or your own spiritual growth. When you think about it this way, love is a verb, it's a choice, it's an action word, as my high school English teacher would say. Love is an action that mixes together all kinds of important ingredients, ingredients like care and affection and respect and recognition, commitment and trust and open, honest communication. It's love like this that I want to talk about today. Love as an action. Love is what love does. Love like this is incredibly powerful and strong, and it has the power, I know, to change us as individuals and to change our world. This is the kind of love that Bell Hooks talks about in her book. 
And she goes on not just to say what love is in the positive, but also to talk about what love is in the negative. It's another way of thinking about it. And she tells stories and she shapes our understanding. And she says, it's important to be clear. So often we are not, but it is important to be clear that love is not what is present. When oppression or domination, when fear or greed or addiction, when any of those things are present, love is not there. When one person is dominating another, when we are acting out of fear or greed, love is not present. She says, forget what anybody has told you, that these things can coexist. They do not, because love is as love does. Love is an action. We cannot say that we love another person if we diminish or demean them. We cannot say that we love ourselves if we are diminishing or demeaning ourselves. We cannot say that we love the world, that we are living by an ethic of love if we stand back and allow whole groups of people or individuals to be diminished or oppressed. Love and domination simply cannot coexist, she says, whether that domination is happening in our homes or in our world. Love is not what is present when racism or patriarchy or rigid, dualistic ideas about gender expression are ruling the day. Love is not present when someone is saying, when there are structures in place that dictate that some of us are less valuable and less human than others. Love is what love does. It sounds simple, but it sure isn't easy to enact. And here we are, right? Here we are in this universalist congregation that is founded on a spirit of love. It's founded on a love that includes all, that holds no one outside of the circle. In the universalist spirit of love and hope, we give and receive and grow. That is the mission that owns us here in this congregation, in the universalist spirit of love and hope. So how do we act this out in the world, in our lives, moment by moment? It all can seem kind of complicated, but I think it comes down to some simple guiding questions. Is what I am doing, is my action right now helping me or another person to grow? Then perhaps it is love. Is what I am doing right now helping me or another person to grow? Will this decision I am making, will it grow my heart? These are the questions we can use. You might have others too. Because love is not concerned. Love is not concerned, Alice Walker told us and tells us. It is not concerned with whom we pray or where we slept the night we ran away from home. Love is concerned that the beating of our heart should kill no one that our actions should hurt no one, that by being here, we make a difference, we offer growth for ourselves and another, then love is here. When we live by a love ethic, when we make that hard but important choice again and again, well, we presuppose, we all agree then that each person, no matter if they are like us or not like us, that each person has the right to live fully and free and well. 
And our actions must then create the conditions where everyone has that opportunity. When we live by a love ethic, the choices are in front of us all the time. All the time we can choose to practice. In this world where I think so many of us feel a steady drip of oppression, a steady drip of self-hatred or sadness or loss, in this world where the haves and the have-nots have been actively separated and divvied up and a gulf of ignorance and fear has been created between us, the work of living by a love ethic can seem overwhelming. It can feel impossible to repair our hearts and souls and our world to bring back that feeling of wholeness and strength that is the birthright of each and every one of us. But I have no doubt that if we ground ourselves in love, if we allow the steady drip of love to come on us, to give it out to others, then it is reasonable to hope. It is reasonable to choose this path. A wise colleague of mine once wrote, it cannot be done all at once. We cannot take it all on at once, but every day offers every one of us invitations for resistance. Every day offers every one of us invitations for resistance, and we make our own responses. So this sermon... It began with the question, have you been saved? But I think it ends best with a different kind of question. What responses will we make to these everyday invitations? How will we turn love into an action word in our lives? What are we going to do today or tomorrow or next month to make love come alive in our choices? What invitations will we see before us and how will we respond? These are the questions I think we need to wrestle with again and again. There are those among us, sometimes all of us, I think, who feel the steady drip of oppression or disconnection or despair. For those of us who feel that, how will we make ourselves available again to the love of the world. And for those of us who feel hopeless or in despair, defeated when we look at the stubbornness of the world's problems or of our family's problems or our own problems, how might we offer that steady drip of love to ourselves and to others? How might we enable ourselves to look up from time to time to see the gifts of our leaky bucket of love and all those drips that are happening to us, all that we are offering to the world, how might we open our eyes and ask ourselves again and again how to make love an action word in our lives? May these be the questions that live with us today and every day. Amen.